0: And welcome to Linux Action News, episode 161. Recorded on November 1st, 2020, I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Welcome aboard the Linux news train. It's good to be here. And we start off with Fedora 33. It officially released this week. We've both been running it. That's right. Enjoying it, you could say. And I'd say the headline feature of the workstation version is both Gnome Shell 338, which has lots of great fixes and improvements. It's a really great release but the headline bold feature in the workstation version is ButterFS as the default file system if you do a new install. That's a big change. And it's one that you and I have been pounding. (laughs) You can say that again. I mean, really, I've thrown thrown, uh, several machines post-release, and we also threw some machines at it for the beta test. And then we got a bunch of the Linux Unplugged audience to do some beta testing on it, too. So we really put the ButterFS through its paces. I mean... Tried to break it. I managed to kind of screw my system up once in all of it. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. It really is. You know, I installed this thing probably a dozen times by now. Fedora 33. I wouldn't have known anything was
1: different. It it just worked like
0: normal. The uh, and I suppose maybe that's that's really the 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 nice thing is. It seems like it really hasn't been very disruptive. For such a significant change under the hood, we, we really have not gotten any reports of massive failures or... Yeah, I think that's definitely a sign of a successful deployment. I reached out to uh, Matt DM, the uh, project leader, and I asked him just how's it going after the release? Yeah. You know, are you pulling your hair out? That kind of stuff. And he said, actually, everything's going really well. Lots of praise and positive reports. They believe this was one of the most heavily participated in betas that they've seen with Fedora. And they hope that translates to post-release enthusiasm. We don't know yet, but they hope it it translates to people getting excited and downloading it. It is a pretty great release. He also mentioned that there is a secure boot issue that is lingering in the future, which we'll tell you about more soon. And that may require the Fedora project to re-spin the Fedora 33 releases in February, but they'll communicate about that. It's something they've been working on. It's something Canonical's working on. It's a known issue, but it's going to be problematic in the wild for some people, and Matt wanted to raise our attention.
1: Yeah, this is all from that boot hole vulnerability, a problem with Grub 2. Because of Secure Boot, Grub 2 was patched, but you also got to update with a new signature because all the old vulnerable Grub 2s, they still have valid signatures, and you can use them with Secure Boot, And until you revoke that, well, you're not really fixing the problem.
0: Yeah, that's a problem. That means a lot of systems that have the old signatures won't be able to boot. Hence, while we'll have to potentially spin new media, and then, of course, they should have the fix baked into Fedora 34. I will say, I am glad that they're working on this, that someone out there is keeping track. Yeah, yeah, it does sound like they're on top of it. Now, we also have um, a new edition, a new and official edition, starting with the 33 release series. Fedora IoT has been promoted to an official edition. Really not sure if this is
1: big news or just some news, but I think it will make Fedora IoT a little more prominent. I mean, hey, we're talking about it, and it is now an official edition alongside, alongside Workstation and Server.
0: You know, we went and looked it up. We're like, okay, who are they targeting this at? And they do address that uh, both in their documentation and in some talks that are on YouTube. And it seems to be they're really targeting this at just developers who already exist in the Fedora ecosystem, and they want to have an official answer with the IoT version. And there seems to be some interesting bits to this.
1: Yeah, right. And maybe the story is you already like Fedora, you deploy
0: it elsewhere in your ecosystem or your stack, and now, well, you have the ability to target IoT. And there's aspects of Fedora IoT that that make it more appealing to Internet of Things devices that have perhaps a consumer deployment where they need updates to be really robust and easy and also revertible. Exactly. And yep,
1: Fedora IoT definitely has that, you know, things like immutability and, and image-based deployments where you've tested your image all the way, you know that it's good, and then you roll it out. Fedora IoT does that with things like RPM OS tree, which is sort of the hybrid image slash packaging system. It also means updates are atomic and easy to roll back. So even though, yeah, you've tested your image, you also have some good capabilities in the field if something does go wrong.
0: Yeah. And while, you know, we, I don't know how many people are really going to use this in production today, I could see someone wanting to target some hardware that they release in a couple of years. It might make a lot of sense to build on Fedora today. That will be the future
1: of the ecosystem. We've certainly seen that.
0: Well, a risk five future got a little bit closer this week when Sci-5 unveiled their plans for a Linux PC with a RISC-V processor at the heart of it. Yeah, this is interesting. It's got a
1: mini-ITX motherboard with a standard ATX power connector. So, hey, I've got plenty of those laying around. 8 gigs of DDR4 RAM and 32 megs of QSPI flash memory to boot. It's also got a gigabit Ethernet port and USB 3.2 connectors. There's also a PCIe 3.0 X8 slot. Oh, yeah. Really? So you could put something like a graphics card, FPGA, yeah. like a real PCI card in like there. Like a real PCI card. Yeah, that's pretty neat. That's and kind of exciting.
0: There's an M.2 connector. So, you know, maybe you've got an SSD you want to slide in. Yeah, or Wi Fi or a Bluetooth dongle could go in there too. Totally. um Yeah, this sounds really, really promising. But I don't think it means you're going to get a Linux PC in 2021 powered by a RISC V processor you gotta you got to set your expectations accordingly. This is a developer's tool. This is not going to result in a laptop yet or anything like that. James Pryor from Sci-5 was interviewed by Wendell on Level 1 Techs, and he touched on the goals of the RISC-V machine. Here's a clip of that.
1: The intent here is not to go after... PC market share. We're not trying to build a laptop or a PC for watching videos or doing email. What we're trying to do is enable Linux developers to build new kernels, new drivers, new everything that they want to build or real-time OS that they can use in their company's strategic use of RISC-V. We're really focusing on the professional developer um, for our partners. And that's uh, the the main focus here is just to really kickstart the ecosystem, kind of like how Microchip have done with their PolarFire SOC Icicle Kit. That's a great board for building uh, prototype applications because you've got...
0: So what has been released here is a really fast native RISC-V development platform with serious options. And if you go to the RISC-V site, we'll have a link in the show notes, they have this really cool chip configurator. Have you played with this? Oh, man, this is so neat. Yeah, it's like building your very own custom chip right here on their website. You go through the customization. You can add on machine learning capabilities. You can take the slider from one core to six cores. You can say, yes, I would like to have a supervisor mode, a user mode, and machine mode. And then you go through each component, how you want the memory to work, the ports available, the security features, the debug interface. And then you design something for test. You have a power management section you work through. And by the end of it, You've essentially built this custom RISC V chip with everything you need on the board to run your embedded application from from toasters to routers and printers. And
1: importantly, everything you didn't need, well, that's not in there, right? You can have a minimal security profile. You can select just the features that are gonna make it, you know, the the price that you need and the features that you need.
0: Yeah, I would I would recommend that interview with Wendell. Because uh, it gives you insight into how Sci-Fi plans to bring value to what is an open platform and an open spec and an open chip. Yeah. And I think one of those ways is that, yeah,
1: you can pick and choose. You can make it just whatever you need.
0: Yeah, it is so neat. Even if you don't really understand any of this stuff, just to see how they can kind of stand out, it's worth checking out the link in the show notes. And... And catching that interview, I think it turned out pretty good. Also, Codeplay has joined the RISC-V Foundation. Codeplay is joining the RISC-V Foundation and bringing their tools to the platform along with their tools around AI, which I think is going to be a big play. OpenCL also, some of their tools around there. Big
1: yeah, play. absolutely. Well, and, you know, as RISC-V comes online and, and develops... The world we live in is, yes, we still have general compute, but there's all kinds of different options, specific accelerations, things for machine learning, uh, machine vision, or all, all kinds of embedded applications where you just need a specialized chip. And I think RISC-V is very well posed
0: to take over a lot of those new markets. And it's, it's worth noting that they've had some recent investment money land, and they've also got a new CEO, Chris Latner, who's known for working at Apple on Swift worked at Tesla. He worked at Google and invented LLVM. Um, he now works at Risk, or he now works at Sci Five on Risk V. And that's a pretty big get. They also got a Qualcomm uh, guy as their CEO now. So, that Qualcomm knows about chips. Yeah, yeah,
1: right. It seems like there's a lot of good pieces falling in line. Still early days. We're going to see what's happening. And, you know, as we said, you won't really be running it on your desktop anytime soon. But, There's more options to start playing with it, start designing, start seeing where it might make sense if you are in any of these spaces.
0: Linode.com slash land. Go there, get a $100 60-day credit towards your new account and support the show. This episode is sponsored by Linode, the world's largest independent cloud for developers. They started in 2003 as one of the first companies in cloud because they saw what was coming down the pipe in the Linux kernel and they knew what they could do with it. Because they're Linux users. That's one of the things I love about them. And they've been around three years before AWS. So they're independently owned and they're founded on a love for Linux. That's why they support projects like Kubuntu, Linux Fest Northwest, and yes, your humble news program. And you know, just recently, you were we were taking advantage of Linode and you didn't even know it. It was like happening transparently in the show. Get ready for this. The clip we just played earlier from Sci-Five from object storage on Linode. I know, it's crazy. It blows your mind, but it is true. We use it for the production here on the show. We use it as our back-end infrastructure. The fact that they're independently owned and the way they run Linode is all part of it. But then if you ever run into any trouble, if you have any tr- trouble getting set up or have any problems with Linode itself, they have 24-7 customer support by phone or ticket. And then on top of that, they have hundreds of guides and tutorials to get you started. they got a YouTube channel that's got content on it that introduces you to concepts like Kubernetes, which you can easily manage Kubernetes on Linode. That's actually one of the things that people love about it. That, and I hear from Alex that it has fantastic Terraform support as well. But I'm all about the VPSs and the object storage. Now, they have systems that start at $5 a month, and you can ramp it up from there. you got systems with tons of GPU and CPU and even even when you go all in with like a baller system, they're still thirty five to fifty percent cheaper than the big platforms. and you're 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 getting it from a company who's an independent Linux-based company and been in the community forever, which is just so great. So i but I talk about their object storage. What is it? If you don't know? object storage is an easy way for you to store and access data without the need for a front-end server. You can upload something to their cloud object storage, generate a URL and share it if you like, or set up a static website and, Have it load crazy fast. Really, they're just dedicated to offering the best virtualized cloud computing as well. So between all of their services, at the end of it, the core of it is that. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. And if you go to linode.com slash coder, you get a $100 60-day credit towards your new account. And you support the show. You let them know you heard about it here. That's linode.com slash LAN. Thanks to Linode for sponsoring Linux Action News. And thanks to everyone who supports the show by visiting linode.com slash LAN. It's about to get a lot simpler to install Ubuntu on WSL2, at least if you like the command line. Yeah, you could just say Ubuntu is going to be the default now. On the command line, if you do wsl.exe space dash dash install, when that begins the process, it will finish now by downloading and installing Ubuntu, which I think this is huge for Canonical. And um, it was theirs to announce. Canonical led with the story on their company blog. And it's, it's coming, right? It's not shipping today in Ubuntu, or it's not shipping today in Windows, I should say, but it's coming with uh, preview builds. You'll be able to get it, and uh, then later on, they'll backport it to older versions of Windows as well, so you don't actually have to be on the latest and greatest eventually oh, once nice. it's out there. It yeah. is easy. You know, I'm pretty glad that
1: I don't have to mess up with PowerShell commands anymore or dig through trying to find the right Windows feature to enable because it's just not how I'm used to using computers, and when I am on Windows... The quickest I can get Linux set up in there, the better.
0: Yeah, I'll actually say I thought the process was kind of crappy before um, because I I didn't really know what I was doing. So I went and did the add remove features and I added the subsystem, but then I had to go to the store for some stuff. And I didn't necessarily do it in the right order. And so the experience was really crap. Like, so I thought if I just went to the store and I tried to install Ubuntu, it would say, in order to install this, you need the subsystem. That would make sense. So I, I ended up taking multiple trips to the Microsoft store to complete this one task and i really did just want ubuntu uh, but you have to wonder if if this became the default wsl and and it just you know how the default reigns supreme mm-hmm. does this potentially open the door for a new generation of ubuntu developers who start on windows 10 and then deploy on azure and never actually have <laughs> a full fledged ubuntu system locally
1: they might never see the gnome desktop or have a conception of that as ubuntu I- maybe we're deluding ourselves we don't think that's already the case
0: yeah maybe so i mean it used to be the big sales pitch of mac os was get a get a graphical environment that's polished with commercial applications like microsoft office and adobe photoshop while you get access to a powerful unix command line well the, the one thing that mac os doesn't have is it's not linux no it's
1: just different
0: enough yeah and so this is even more compelling because it's all of that same argument plus whichever user land from Linux you'd like to have. Right, and I mean, as you've been seeing with all the hard work Canonical's been doing,
1: th- this is like a, su- a supported version of Ubuntu. It is Ubuntu.
0: Yeah, I think this that's the bigger story here, is it seems to indicate a pretty healthy relationship and a, and a pretty healthy position of trust, because for Microsoft to make it so that way when you install WSL flagship feature now of Windows 10 for developers, the fact that they are bundling by default someone else's operating system... Ooh. I think that's a remarkable statement of trust for Microsoft. Yeah, this is going to be what's happening, right? The This short little command line
1: is going to be copy and pasted everywhere. It'll be in all the default guides and people will be running the latest and greatest Ubuntu LTS. Yeah.
0: So if you are on the Insider's developer channel, you'll be seeing this land on Windows 10 soon. But uh, otherwise, just uh, sit tight. You will eventually get it because Microsoft has committed to backporting this particular feature to previous versions of Windows 10. Additionally... When you're doing that WSL.exe tac tac install, there is an option where you can do dash D or tac D and specify the distro or version you want. So you could actually install Ubuntu eighteen oh four or sixteen oh four this way, or potentially another distro entirely, I think. I'm not particularly familiar with it. Surprise, surprise, not a big Windows 10 user, but it looks like there's going to be some flexibility and options there. I like it. Keeping you up to date on the YouTube DL situation, you may recall last week, YouTube DL was taken off of GitHub after a takedown notice from the RIAA leveraging the DMCA. Well, this week, the Software Freedom Conservancy is publicly asking Microsoft to resign from the RIAA over the YouTube DL takedown. Some of their reasoning
1: involves YouTube's substantial, as they say, non-infringing uses. They write that, well, there are many, but to name a few, things like enabling users to watch YouTube videos without installing any non-free software here here. Or watching YouTube at different speeds, including speeds that YouTube doesn't offer. It's going to be an important feature for accessibility. Another example is being able to change YouTube's video quality setting manually, especially in situations where maybe YouTube's algorithm just isn't cutting it, like on an LTE connection.
0: Yeah, buddy, you can say that again. I'm often stuck on a connection where my carrier forces 480p, and the way they do that is by... Just butting heads with a YouTube client until it forcibly downgrades to 480p. Ouch. Yeah, it's it's a really muddy experience, especially for those pretty drone shots from vlogs. I just prefer to download the videos and watch them offline. It's, it's a huge use case for me. That's why I'm a YouTube premium subscriber. But additionally, and the Software Conservancy points this out as well, there's a lot of journalistic reasons to have something like a tool like YouTube DL, including just being able to fact check easier video analysis, which comes in all the time. And another big one is bandwidth saving for a team. There's no reason why we all need to download the same video when I can put it on our shared system and we can all work from that file. So th- there's a lot of use cases for YouTube DL. And I'm I'm really glad the Software Conservancy is pointing these out. They go on to say that they view Microsoft's membership in the RIAA as a bigger liability to the community now that Microsoft controls GitHub, and I think that's the key point. It's, it's not that this is just any company with any interest. It's Microsoft and it's GitHub, and this is a kind of going to be an ongoing conflict of interest. I think.
1: Yeah, doesn't it kind of feel like uh, the Microsoft joined together with RIAA? Feels kind of like old businessy Microsoft. And these days we've got a, a different view, more code focused, more open
0: Microsoft. At least in theory. And the reality is is pretty much anyone in in any kind of capacity that's dealt with the music industry ends up in the RIAA. So Microsoft selling uh, music tracks. I mean, it's I, I understand why they're in it, but it does seem to be a, a nasty conflict of interest. And this is going to come at a time where it appears the RIAA is really ramping up their approach and their attempt to take down YouTube ripping platforms. Uh, Torrent Freak has been following this issue pretty closely for a while, and they had a post on October 29th. The RIAA is ramping up the pressure on a wide range of platforms allegedly involved in music piracy. Two DMCA takedown subpoenas obtained against Cloudflare and Namecheap require that the companies hand over all information they hold on more than 40 torrent sites, streaming portals, and YouTube ripping services. Now, if you're not familiar, a DMCA subpoena is
1: just one tool in the toolbox the RAA has here, uh, but it's pretty handy because it's easily obtained from a U.S. court without much oversight needed from a judge, and it can be served on various companies, requiring them to hand over information on their allegedly infringing clients. When it comes to these DMCA subpoenas, well, naming them at Cloudflare is a popular choice. The company not only has access to the customer information handed over as part of the sign-up process, but in some instances, it's right in front and can identify the true server locations or IP addresses of
0: the pirate site servers behind them. And you can see how this would be a popular um, destination like at Namecheap, too. You go after you go after their domain registration or perhaps even their hosting there. And Namecheap and Cloudflare are legally required to comply with these. No choice. So this is going to be more of a thing. And I, I really kind of worry worry about Microsoft's conflict of interest there, especially as the RIA feels like they need to take this on. However, it doesn't appear to be all bad news. On October 26th, one of the YouTube DL developers tweeted a screenshot where it seems that Nat Friedman, the uh, CEO of GitHub, came in to their IRC, found them, and opened a dialogue with the developers on what steps need to be taken to get their GitHub project relisted and back online. Yeah, isn't that interesting? The users there asked, you know, okay, well, what might need to happen?
1: And we'd previously discussed the issues around linking to some copyrighted material over on YouTube, right? Okay, in the test, there were some test cases and examples in the README, and like, yeah, here, pointed at a video, even if the whole file wasn't technically downloaded. That would need to be removed. But also... Nat notes some stuff about a rolling cipher circumvention and suggests that, too, would have to come out.
0: Uh Uh-oh. Okay, so can you tell me a little bit about this rolling cipher circumvention code? Something tells me that's kind of critical to how YouTube DL works.
1: Yeah, and this is part of the DMCA where, you know, you can get in trouble for trying to break controlled access to things. What's going on here is, well, when you go to a YouTube page, the publicly accessible version... You also have to go figure out what the actual link to the file that is going to get played is.
0: And Google's got some code to do that. So it's a public URL for that, say, MP4 file on the back end, but they obscure it from the client. Exactly. And YouTube DL, of course, has to
1: have code to take the public URL, the main one that you go to actually watch the video, and then determine the real
0: URL for the file hosted. Even though, as you say, once you have the URL, there's no controls on it. You can just download it. So this rolling cipher circumvention code figures out what the private URL is from the public URL of a YouTube video. Exactly. Still all operating on public
1: stuff. They've just figured out what Google's doing to go, you know, track from the
0: original stuff to the secret, quote-unquote, secret stuff behind. And this kind of explains why sometimes you need to update YouTube DL for it to work, right? Because probably something in this area has changed.
1: Yeah, you know, as YouTube changes things, updates the cipher, tweaks things here and there, YouTube DL has to keep up. Now, we should say, right, YouTube DL does download from a whole bunch of stuff that isn't YouTube very handy, but it's right in the name. It's one of its major use cases. So yes, they
0: might get their GitHub repo back, but will it be the full working system? Right, you could see a situation where, okay, they clean up the docs, they get the music video links out of there, and then they post a version up on GitHub that doesn't have this rolling cipher circumvention code that you have to then go get separately. And from like a Linux user's perspective, there'd probably be the YouTube DL package and then the YouTube DL Cypher package. Reminds me of the days of Codex, really. Yeah, YouTube DL dash YouTube again? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, you could see something like that. Although from a project, they have to be looking at this going, "Ah, maybe we'll just self-host. Screw this. This is just not going to work for us. I I don't know. There's pros and cons to that. We discussed that further in Linux Unplugged, so I'll leave that conversation there. But I, I hope someone on that development team has at least gotten some legal advice because this is getting... When you look at what the RIA is up to and you look at the complications here and the fact that this rolling cipher circumvention code appears to be part of the issue, that's where I start to think, ah, this project needs some legal consulting. Yeah, I
1: mean, this issue's not going any... This is not going away anytime soon, I'm right. afraid.
0: Right now, all that said, there is a brand new fresh version of YouTube DL out, so go, go go get your updates if you can. It's probably be packaged soon. That's <laughs> good to see. Yeah,
1: easiest place. It's just their homepage, youtube-dl.org.
0: We were looking at the story on Hacker News, and the top comment on Hacker News is, quote, I'd never heard of YouTube DL prior to this whole saga, but I used it for the first time yesterday, and it works great. I should be thanking the RIA for cluing me in. <laughs> if that isn't a perfect example of the Streisand effect right there.
1: It really is. And kudos to the YouTube DL Project tool I use all the time.
0: Well, that does bring us to the end of this week's Linux Action News. But go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for
1: all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch.
0: And if you haven't done this already, why not get the All Shows feed? You can find that in your podcast catcher. Just search for all Jupiter Broadcasting shows, or there's a link on our website.
1: We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news.
0: Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week.